Happy Sabbath, folk. Shalom, Sabbat. Sabbat, right? Sabbat, Shalom. That's good. I've been instructed a number of times from people here and people who knew me elsewhere. I get a lot of ring on it, folk. Maybe I'll step over here a little bit. Is it all right to go up there? All right. Telling me what I ought to do this weekend. And um, last weekend, especially this young, well, his wife and he are in residential residency work up in Sacramento. Happens every time. And he said, make sure that you tell them the guts of Adventism. And um, in other words, no generic Christianity. And I thought that was pretty good advice. So what I'm going to do tonight is give you an overview of what I think is the most important thinking pattern that Adventists can get into. And the deeper you go, the sweeter it gets. And after about 10,000 years, you'll still be learning more about what I'm talking to tonight. So this is just an overview. I'm still in kindergarten, so you have to help me along. But the longer we live in on the other side, everything I say tonight will, will, will be just simply questions that you're going to ask Paul and ask Noah and ask the good Lord to go even deeper. Because I'm talking about a subject tonight that makes all the difference in the world as to why Adventists think differently. We do theology differently, and I'm going to talk about that tomorrow more specifically. You know, I'm going to share something before my wife tells somebody, but I've never been in this situation before, ever. This morning I got up, went out to my wife, my daughter's swimming pool and sat down and to work over my notes for this weekend, and I opened my valise, and the sermon book, it wasn't there. I left it up in Sacramento. And they went through all the normal helpers, you know, how to get my book down here before tomorrow morning. And I said, no. You know, I've been living off some simple words in Proverbs 3, 5. Rest in the Lord, with all your heart and rely not upon your own understanding or misunderstandings or whatever you've messed up. Just keep relying upon Him. And that's been working pretty good for years. So I said, well, let's see how it goes. Tomorrow especially. Because we all can talk about so many interesting subjects. Really. Really. You'd be, you'd be, I think, satisfied with a lot of subjects we can talk about. But there's only one subject that separates Adventism from all other Christian groups. And that is the great controversy. No other church or philosophy has a grasp even of what I'm talking about when I say the great controversy theme. Not about the fifth book in the conflict set. Not about the fact that good and evil is, is going at each other, you know, ever since the beginning. 
No, and I'm not talking about God being against evil. Many churches say that. Adventists look at it altogether differently. And that's why we must do theology differently. And we'll talk about that tomorrow more specifically. <clears throat> and I, I, I do uh, crave questions and answers. My questions and your answers. Because that's the only way we're going to stay together until we quit tomorrow afternoon. And as we go tonight, I'm not going to have time tonight to answer questions. But tomorrow afternoon, please have them ready because that's why I'm here. I'm not, I don't want to leave anybody with a doubt as to what I meant. Because that's what all preachers and teachers do. You, you run along so fast and you don't quite say what you ought to say or wanted to say. And so you need some questions somewhere to find out if you're making any headway, you know. I want people to know uh, at least what I'm trying to say. And so let's get going. And uh, when I say six risks in the plan of salvation, these are not exactly risks on the part of God. But from the human standpoint, oh, they were colossal risks. And that's the only way we can think anyhow as a human being. So we have to look upon God. How in the world did you get yourself into this jam? Why did you put it up with it? If you knew it all in advance, why did you put up with this? Well, humanly speaking, that's the question we ought to ask. And he's ready, he's anxious, because the whole point of the great controversy is to get people asking why he did what he did. And not to be caught up in listening to Satan's reason as to why God did what he did. And the issue in the great controversy is God doing his best to settle the questions that Satan has aroused throughout the universe. Everyone in this room has had questions about God sometime in his life. Well, for instance, this tragedy over there in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania this week. In his note to his wife, that young adult that mowed down these six or seven young people, he said to his wife, I have been angry at God ever since he took away our little child. I forgot how many years ago. I'm, I'm sorry, but you know the story. I'm angry at God. He took our little daughter away. Well, that may be a reason why he did what he did, but it shows his attitude toward God was not so great. And when people shout Allah, Allah Lakem, Allah Akbar, that's their opinion of God. God is on my side as I kill these infidels. And the more infidels I can kill, the better off we're all going to be. And if I die, no problem. I have a great future with 70 virgins in heaven. I mean, this, these are pictures of God. I'm suggesting that if we had a, a few hours together and we had a little, you know, just a, a symposium of everyone in this room talking about what God is like to you, I am sure there would be at least 10 different definitions as to how you look at God. 
I am sure of that. And so that's why I thought a long time ago that if I wanted to make any sense out of my life and if I wanted to do any good to anybody else, I better talk, talk about God and what he means to me and why I think that way about him and how it fits into making this whole universe, never mind this world, the whole universe secure sometime in the future from anybody not being sure if they can trust God. And I'm telling you, the church that I love has a number of problems in answering how to look at this God that I'm talking about tonight. Every single division in the Adventist church and every single division in Christianity generally is over what people think about God. I know we can argue about this and that and this scripture and that chapter. And overall, it's how you're thinking about God. And we'll get into that tomorrow. And so, the cost of freedom. That was the theme of that book he, we, uh, the doctor told you about, God at Risk. And the subtitle of that book, the kicker, is The Cost of Freedom in the Great Controversy. That's what drove me on to writing those pages. It was a fun thing to do. In fact, often I would write with my t-shirt on. Freedom is not free. Just kept reminding me what the book was all about. And I'm going to get in sync here somewhere. Now you see this picture. I guess that's as bright as it's going to be with those lights on like that. Oh, I got one more thing to make sure of. Uh, this takes at least two hours. And if you folk are starting to fall asleep after 90 minutes, he is going to tell me that that's it for tonight. And so I'll finish it up tomorrow afternoon. Because you have to have the whole picture if it's going to make complete sense. Because the Adventist picture does not stop just halfway over anything. The Adventist picture is always seeing the big picture. And that's what will happen. So you are responsible. If anybody's falling asleep, it's not my fault, it's your fault. Now you see this picture? When I was um, vice president for editorial at Pacific Press, we were doing a new rendering of the Great Controversy book. And we wanted a cover that would be so uh, suggestive. You'd look at it, you'd ponder it, and you'd begin to see some elements here that seemed to suggest something, but you wanted to figure out how they all fit together. And we laid out some of these characteristics we wanted in the picture to a non-Adventist. He was a San Francisco artist who was doing good work for us. And so back came uh, this picture in a way. And we said, we, we think you have it, but we're going to suggest how you can make it even more unified and, and more colorful in giving the big story. And I suppose if you, it takes about 15 minutes for everyone to look at this picture and see what the elements are and how they all fit together.
You can see it yourself, some of them. We're not going to spend time on it now. And I have this original uh, right by my desk. I look at it every so often during the day, sometimes about every 15 minutes. I can't help it. Sometimes I'm so, I've struggled, I'm, I'm, I'm frazzled over something I've got to do, get something out on time, or, or some people are, I won't say difficulty, difficult, but it's not easy to discuss many things when I get emails back and forth all the time. And I look at his face, and, and that face seems to suggest something to me. Courage, my friend. Sometimes I feel so weary for somebody else, so I feel like screaming because some other people are just going through hell on earth. And that face changes for me. It, it, it's just one of those. But you can see the devil, Orion, the return of Jesus, two groups, those people who are the closest to Jesus and why, and the underneath that tree over here is, is the red roots in evil. It's nicer when the lights are off. And so the cost of freedom and the great controversy is the basic theme of the universe. Some people say, well, freedom, really, at the beginning, it's love. Love is the beginning of freedom. No, freedom is the beginning of love. And so we, we begin with that understanding. Freedom, rebellion, restoration, freedom. That's the outline from Genesis to Revelation. If you had those four words in your mind, if every teacher, if every preacher in the Adventist denomination had that on his laboratory board, if every preacher had that on his computer, when he's writing out his sermon. Perhaps things could be made a little clearer. This is the outline for your life. It's just an overview of your life. We won't, I can say too much right now. But when Jesus looked at this possibility of creating this particular world, he deliberately was going head to head with Satan. That's why he made this world. We're going to get into that in a moment. God's greatest gift of his, for his creation, wherever it may be, whatever unfallen worlds, was freedom. Was it worth it? Well, this is where I like to spend 20 minutes, but I'm not going to, because God knew in advance how all this was going to turn out. Of course he did. But if he wanted to have human beings that would really interchange with him and, and, and have a fellowship with created beings like he has with Son and the Holy Spirit, the heavenly trio, he knew he had to give them freedom. But he also knew in advance what a lot of people would do with the freedom they had. And that broke his heart before anybody was created. Slain from the foundation of the world. Absolutely not on Calvary. That was nothing compared to what he's been suffering from the beginning. When I begin to contemplate that, my admiration for him, my, my respect, those words aren't strong enough, my adoration for him, well, 
the more you think about it, the more your willingness to say, Lord, whatever you want me to do, just tell me and I'll do it because that's what he's done for us. When Jesus died on that cross, he had your name on his mind. Your name on his mind. He wasn't doing it for himself. The gift of love was worth the risk. Now these are six risks in the creation. We'll talk about that in a little more. No turning back after creating Lucifer. We could have zapped Lucifer right at the beginning. Well, God knew better. God's response to Satan's lies to be seen in planet Earth's living laboratory. Jesus would become exhibit A, proving Satan wrong. Faithful Christians become divine franchises, proving Satan wrong. Repopulating Earth with former rebels, that would be a great risk. So you see, we're not going to go into all that tonight because I know better. You know, it's Friday night and you're going to be sleepy. But we'll do it in the afternoon just finishing it up. But these are the six points. He put himself at risk when he decided that love was worth the risk. Anybody who's ever had children knows that it's inherently risky. And anybody who's been a child knows that it's risky. To just live as a child in this crazy world. You know what, I think you know what heartache you bring to your father and mother. The older you get, the more you realize the kind of heartache you brought to them. But if the parent knew in advance that their child at three years old would die of leukemia, would they want the child? If they knew that the child at 17 was just going to blow it, embarrass the family's name, and know that the child is going to have an awful life full of consequences, would you still have the child? God saw all that from the beginning. Do you think he's still one of his children? Think about it. Think about it. Love is inherently risky. Adam and Eve discovered very quickly that just a wee bit of mistake, just a wee bit uh, of not being faithful to God. Whoa, the consequences of that. And you find out there's consequences in everything you say when you do when you say no to God. Freedom means the risk of saying both yes and no unless God made robots. No, people can buy dolls that you can wind them up and they say anything you want them to say. I love you, Daddy. I love you, Daddy. I love you, Daddy. And you can do it every day. You'll always hear that. I love you, Daddy. I love you, Daddy. Is that really what a, a genuine father wants to hear? Just words? Of course not. If God made wonderful people, they're always kind and generous to everybody. And they're always there on Sabbath just saying, I adore you, Father. I adore you, Father. Nobody in the universe like you. Thank you for creating us. Because that's what they're made to do. No. No. 
God couldn't live with that, neither could you. We're not robots. Giving us freedom, God gave himself a forever heartache. Real heartache. Just like some fathers and mothers have forever heartaches. When that two-year-old, three-year-old looks so promising. Going through elementary school, so promising. They work so hard on their homework and, oh, that child is going to be a blessing to this world. And by the time they graduate from college, you can see they'll never be that way. Well, God saw that. Just headaches. And Jesus has been slain from the foundation of the world. He was willing to say, it's worth it. He could have had perfect obedience, of course. But a loving universe requires trust and appreciation. The free expression of persons saying yes to each other. What kind of a marriage would it be if somehow one or the other was so programmed that they're always doing what the other person wants them to say or do. Well, I guess that works out in some families, but um, that's not love. That's not love. Love lets people express and grow, and, and you'd like to see how people develop over the years. I know more about my wife today than I did 100 years ago because she's just more lovable. She's more trusting. She's more generous in her spirit. Just saying yes to each other develops such an appreciation on the part of those who live together. When you love a person, you are giving him or her the power to hurt you. Anybody in this room who's been through a divorce knows exactly what I'm talking about. Jesus has gone through every experience that everyone in this room has gone through or will go through. Number two, what to do with Lucifer? Even though God saw it all in advance, as soon as he created Lucifer, the son of the morning, there was no turning back. He made Lucifer into his director of communication. He was God's trusted PR man. He was the one who could explain to everyone what God was really like because he was closer to God than any other created being. God could count on Lucifer to answer any question at all that might arise in the, somewhere in the universe. That's how much trust he put in this very wise, very beautiful person. You know the story of how it all turned out. But it wasn't God's fault that it turned out that way. There's something about jealousy and envy. And I've written quite a bit about that in my book, God at Risk. So I'm not going to touch it right here. But he, when he, there was no turning back because Lucifer too had the, uh, the opportunity to say yes or no to his creator. And he thought through... He thought through a, a, a program whereby it would appear to the universe that he really had some 
some ideas that God needed to consider. And anybody who's trying to help another person uh, consider some possibilities that there might be another way to do things. Uh, you're the one who's being upfront, you know, but the more people got into it and confused about what he was trying to say, don't worry, guys. And when it came out more and more that this is all happening, the wise angels are saying, whoa, 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 who's causing this? Satan, uh, no, Lucifer, why are you doing this? Who, me? Who, me? If God really didn't say what we heard last week, these people wouldn't be so full of questions. Not me. Well, I've got a whole chapter on this kind of thing, the scapegoating and the confusion and then the coercion that every evil person goes through in his home or in his office or in church. It happens anytime there's jealousy and envy. The power, the wannabes that have to be number one. Why didn't God, all-powerful and all-wise, stop Lucifer's rebellion before it went any further? He could have zapped him, and, and the universe would say, Oh, now we got it all settled. Uh, Lucifer's gone, and, and would it have been settled at all? The questions would still be there. Whoa! Would killing Satan end God's problems or make them worse? I mean, boy, you've got to watch out. If you disagree with God, you're going to be zapped. Better watch your back. Have you ever heard that in the world today? Better watch your back? Well, let me tell you, that would have been really a disease of the universe. Because you don't want to disagree with God. You just let him know that you're on his side. Because, boy, if you disagree with God, look what happened to Lucifer. It doesn't pay to cross God. Behind that smiling face, watch it. And God saw the end from the beginning. And Helena said, God permitted Satan to carry forward his work until the spirit of disaffection ripened into active revolt. It was necessary for his plans to be fully developed that their true nature and tendency might be seen by all. It takes time, doesn't it? It takes time. We wanted no doubt of God's fairness after the controversy is over. Satan's rebellion was to be a lesson to the universe, not just to this world, through all coming ages. For the good of the entire universe, he must more fully develop his principles that his charges against the divine government might be seen in their true light by all created beings. See, what we're talking about here is a problem that doesn't affect only this world. All the intelligences and in the, I don't know, zillions of other planets are affected by the same questions that go through the minds of people here on this planet. Obviously they had questions. And this is what had to be seen in its true light by all created beings. And that the justice and mercy of God and the immutability of his law might be forever placed beyond all question. Now, that really is a big mouthful for any theologian, any philosopher to think about. 
huge risk. Number three, the creation of men and women on planet Earth to validate God's side of the controversy. To get through this answer to Satan's generated problem was to create a laboratory on this planet. Whoa! God was putting the the whole controversy that he is being misunderstood in trying to portray his side of it. He's going to let a, the living laboratory be his the best solution. He's not going to stand up there and speak louder, holler louder than all the evil angels. He's not going to stand up there and write every night on the clouds, you must love me because I'm your creator. And every night he comes up with a different message. When you're being misunderstood, your best tactic is not just to speak louder. And I didn't do that. I didn't say that. And other people say, well, that's not what I, I think we heard that. How do they hear it? Well, this person said that you said it. You know how it goes. So you cannot do it by just talking louder than the person who's accusing you. Now, what are some of Satan's charges that he insinuated so successfully, so made it so believable on the part of one-third of these marvelously intellectual people? Oh, God is basically selfish. From the beginning of the great controversy, he has, from the beginning now, he has endeavored to prove God's principles of action to be selfish. And he deals in the same way with all who serve God. You're in it too, folk. To disprove Satan's claim is the work of Christ and of all who bear his name. You're part of God's answer to Satan's charges. Is God selfish? Is he severe and unforgiving? A being whose chief attribute is stern justice. One who is a severe judge, a harsh and exacting creditor. I tell you, more Christians believe that than believe the picture of God that you and I have. More, by far, by far the greater percentage of Christians believe that. And I can give you all kinds of evidence for this. Oh, he's the author of sin, suffering, and death. How many times when you visit somebody in a hospital and you may be standing there with another minister maybe or with someone who comes with some flowers and tries to cheer up the person lying on that bed and say, my dear friend, it must be God's will. That is rank dishonesty. That is really putting God in the docket. I mean, can you imagine that when people are hit by a car on the road, even by a drunk, by anybody who picks up some cancer at two years of age, it's God's will? Come on. That's not biblical. It's amazing how the whole world has their own way of defining who is the cause of suffering and death. 
You hear it in so many. Oh, well, I don't want to get into that. Now, God was unfair in that he imposed laws that men and women could not keep. This is charge number four. You know that. You've heard this before many times. You hear it on every Christian broadcast, every TV, every radio broadcast in this country, not only on Sunday mornings, not only on Sunday mornings. From the first, the great controversy had been upon the law of God. Satan had sought to prove that God was unjust, that his law was faulty, and that the good of the universe required it to be changed. Satan had pointed to Adam's sin as proof that God's law was unjust and could not be obeyed. And he could point to every sin that you and I have done <clears throat> in our lifetime and say, see, these are good people, but look, they can't keep that law. There's something wrong with the law. And you're just adding to what Satan said is the truth about the law. Every time you mess things up. All who break God's commandments are sustaining Satan's claim that the law is unjust and cannot be obeyed. Thus they second the deceptions of the great adversary and cast dishonor upon God. I tell you, I have read shells and shells of theological books. I got my doctorate alongside of Catholics and Buddhists and many other Protestant denominations and I listened for years to their best answers to the problems that, that we could be discussing tonight and I was so glad that there was one place in the universe that I could go to get a reasoned answer to all these problems and that was the writings of Ellen White I've been there I have been there He knew how to get to Eve through flattery. Through lies, of course, but through flattery. And it's, you know, self-esteem is, is, is kind of a subtle, probably the most subtle kind of temptation we have because we all kind of enjoy a little self-esteem. But God wants you to have, you know, a self-awareness of what reality is, not self-esteem. You're not number one. You shouldn't even think that you want to be number one. So God risked his integrity on a living laboratory to, to answer all these allegations and many more that we could say. And it was a new order and it became the talk of the universe because here were other intelligences around the universe watching what God was doing on this planet that he's calling Earth. And he watched how the first day, the second day, the third day, is this how he created our world too? And, whoa, you know, the sixth day, look at this man. He's different than us. What's going on here? Wait and see. And, before Sabbath came, he found a mate for Adam. I've given two uh, wedding homilies this past month. 
and I, I, I developed this kind of thought, but um, that was a wow to watch Eve come down the aisle in the arm of the Heavenly Father. And he saw Eve for the first time, like many men see their wives to be. You know, that, that wedding day is really something special. Women just look really special on that wedding day. And he must have said, you know, no buck ever had a doe like this. Wow. Thank you, Lord. But I'll go on to explain that some other time. It's a new order. Satan's principles and God's principles would be worked out side by side. All heaven took a deep and joyful interest in the creation of the world and of man. Human beings were a new and distinct order. Now some of you may see that for the first time and go home tonight and think about it. Think about it all day tomorrow. Why? Why were we a new and distinct order so that what happens on this earth was not happening anywhere else in the universe? They were made in the image of God. And it was the Creator's design that they should populate the earth they were to live in close communion with God, with heaven, receiving power from the source of all power, <clears throat> upheld by God. They were to live sinless lives. That was part of the laboratory. And so, when God fashioned Adam, and after Adam felt awfully lonely that Friday, after he saw all these birds building their nests and he saw the lionesses playing with the lion and he named them all and he said, isn't there anybody for me? Am I the only one without a mate? No, I'm just, I just wanted you to get the whole point because I'm not just going to give you a mate. I'm going to give somebody that is the other side of what it looks like to be in the image of God. You just have one half of the picture of God. I'm going to create a partner for you and on and on you know I can develop this it was special real special I love this now that the longer man lived the more fully he should reveal this image 5,000 years 10,000 years 2 million years the longer he lives reveal this image the more fully reflect the glory of the creator throughout eternal ages he would have continued to gain new treasures of knowledge to discover fresh springs of happiness. 5,000 years, 5 million years, you're still getting new fresh springs for happiness and to obtain clearer and yet clearer conceptions of the wisdom, the power, and love of God. That's some laboratory. Just think of it, man. That's a, what an opportunity. Still reading, more and more fully would he have fulfilled the object of his creation. More and more fully have reflected the creator's glory or character, same thing. And so, that was all ahead of him. Never get through learning more springs of happiness and understanding God in fresher ways. 
And further, God planned that in the development of the human race, whoa, this is strong. He would put in our power, through cooperation with him, to bring this scene of misery to an end. The misery that the whole universe was going through. And it was in our power to bring this scene of misery to an end. How long do you think God would have to wait for this scene to come to an end? 2,000 years? 4,000 years? 6,000 years? 12,000 years? It's in our power to cooperate with him to bring it to an end. That's one of the essential purposes of the Adventist church. Okay, what's so new and distinct here? Responsibilities of procreation. And we can talk about this for a good hour. Responsibilities that every parent has. He begins anyhow, well, most parents, most parents, not every parent, love these children that they brought into the world. And you love them especially when they disobey. If you're a genuine father and mother, not just a biological parent, how many parents love their children and then wait for them to accept it? I think that through clearly. The children are messing things up and they are feeling very guilty and they hide in the corner and they come home from school late and go right to their room, you know, and they feel guilty about this and that because and the father and mother says, well, if you'd only ask me, I'll be glad to show him my love and I'll be glad to forgive him. That's the way most Christians look at God tonight. And I'm saying most Adventists look at God that way. And somehow we have to make a deal with God. And God is going to show how much he loves us only after we make a deal. That is, we confess. And if we confess, now God is going to really show he loves us. He's going to forgive us. Now, no parent that I know about ever looks at a child that way. And most of the time the parent knows that the child has blown it. And it's only right that he doesn't let the child get away with it too easily. He's waiting for the child to come to his senses, but he, sur- he doesn't stop supper. He doesn't stop loving that child. In fact, he loves them a little bit more, closer to him. He just lets the child know a little more of a hug, and the child feels more guilty every time he gets a bigger hug from father or mother. No real child with genuine parents ever has to wonder if that parent is loving him. He doesn't have to make a deal. Most Christians don't understand God that way. How long would it take in this lab for God's purpose in this new order to work out? Well, you can answer that one by yourself. What could please Satan more than to have Jesus on his own turf? Now we're getting into number four. And he didn't come even in the form of an angel. Boy, Satan, because Satan knew that was going to happen. He read the Old Testament too, you know. He, he, he knew all the texts. And he, he knew just where Satan was going, uh, Jesus was going to be born. But as a weak human being with all of humanity's liabilities, 
He wasn't quite so sure that that could work out. He thought that would be a great whisk for everybody, and he was going to win this one. And so, when he did meet Jesus, really face to face, he came as a glorious angel that Jesus could remember only through what the angels had been telling him about his pre-existence. And Satan made it very, very plausible that he was on God's side. He was just one of the angels coming down to help him. This has been a tough time in those many, many days in the wilderness, and he wanted to help him. But Jesus accepted humanity when the race had been weakened by 4,000 years of sin. Like every child of Adam, he accepted the results. Sorry about that. Like every child of Adam, he accepted the results of the working of the great law of heredity. I am really getting into some very simple, believable, non-controversial theology. If you just read the scripture, Hebrews 2, Hebrews 4, Hebrews 5, uh, Ellen White, anywhere you want to look. You know, we just got this phone. And I don't quite know. I'm shutting it off now. I think I am. I've got to get through this text here. What these results were is shown in the history of his earthly ancestors. In other words, if you want to know what kind of a DNA you have, you don't necessarily have to get some genetic expert working on the, the code. Just look at your grandfather grandmother. Start with your father and mother and go all the way back. And I have been shutting this off. I really don't know what else to do. It's vibrating now. Please. That's my brother, Dr. (laughs) Dr. Jerry. (laughs) He knows what to do with it. Now, what these results were is shown in the history of his earthly ancestors. Makes sense, doesn't it? I'm sure you've heard some sermons just by going through the genealogy of Matthew and Luke. And you say, ooh, what a bummer. Well, you've got bummers too in your background. He came with such a heredity to share our sorrows and temptations and to give us the example of a sinless life. With such heredity, as you'll see in his genealogical backup in Matthew and Luke. Yet, into the world where Satan claimed dominion, God permitted his son to come. A helpless babe, subject to the weakness of humanity. This is quite a risk though, isn't it? I mean, he didn't come down like a you know, a prince with round-the-clock nurses and the best pediatricians and the softest bed in the world. He permitted him to meet life's peril in common with everybody in this room. 
to fight the battle as every child of humanity must fight it. At the risk of failure and eternal loss. That the path of life might be made sure for our little ones. This takes a good two or three hours just reading page 49 to have it sink into your head. It certainly has done that for me. He accepted, I'm still reading. He accepted the limitations and liabilities. No, 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 I'm not still reading. I don't want to give you that impression. He accepted the limitations and liabilities of the genetic code that came through his human bloodline. Matthew 1 and Luke 3. He came to share by actual experience our sorrows and temptations. Some of you may know exactly what I'm getting at. No exemptions. Not vicariously. You know, these have been the buzzwords that have divided this Adventist church since 1957. They talk about that more tomorrow. We have a little book that's out there that Pastor Kirkpatrick will pass out to everybody who leaves tonight that talks about this specifically. Page 24, he came to give us an honest example of how to live burdened with the weakness of humanity. I mean, here was a, a, a teenager who knew all the struggles and, and temptations that any boy at 18 would have, any girl would have at 18. He knew how to think it through and what... He asked the Holy Spirit for help in thinking through and doing the right thing. And that's why he's my high priest today, to give to me exactly what the Holy Spirit gave to him going through the same temptations. Otherwise, it's just a big joke. That's why Jesus is my high priest, to do for me what the Holy Spirit did for him. He met life's peril as any one of us must with no special advantages. For 4,000 years, the race had been decreasing in physical strength and mental power and in moral worth. And Christ took upon him the infirmities of degenerate humanity. And only thus could he rescue man from the lowest depths of his degradation. This is really something. Our Savior took humanity with all its liabilities. I could really go on a lot more, but you're getting the idea. And he had to suffer physically under great pressure. He was frazzled many times. He knows what it is to be frazzled and this be misunderstood and pushed around and still hold his peace and be generous in spirit. He came to shut Satan's mouth regarding whether God had asked too much from created intelligences. How did he do it? He proved that every person since Adam can live a loyal, overcoming life by the same powers available to him. He became our benchmark. Anybody happen to have the book that came out in 1977 with the Sabbath school lessons I wrote at that time? I see some hands. The book was Jesus, the Benchmark of Humanity. 
you have to believe me, but it sounds so weird. That Sabbath school quarterly and, and book was burned on the steps of churches in Australia. And boy, Elder Pearson, President of General Conference, and others in the Sabbath School Department really got burdened with letters that were fiery on asbestos from Australia and other areas like that. And still the truth. It's still the truth. Does anybody here have a surveyor background? Has anybody here been on a surveyor? No, I guess not. Well, when a surveyor begins his work in laying out a road or even your property, he has to have a benchmark. He's got to know where he can trust that point where he can mark off in such a way that it won't go on some other, somebody else's property and, and give you a deed that was, well, could not be overturned by anybody. I remember the time in North Dakota when in the Badlands, I came across, uh, uh, I don't know what it was, seemed like it was made of silver and something else, I suppose, uh, a round plaque in the ground. And on it was all this written document, the language of a surveyor. And it was, let's see, that was night. It must have been about 75 years old. Because from that one spot, they figured out where North Dakota and South Dakota and the others, they all began at that one spot. You don't move benchmarks. You don't move benchmarks. That is really illegal. And Jesus is our benchmark forever. He is that place where you get your... Just, you, you, you learn how to find out where everything is right. His risk was possible failure and eternal loss. We already read that. This risk is now moot, of course, now because toe-to-toe with Satan, he, he proved himself able to shut Satan's mouth. But it's still mind-stretching just to think about it. Throughout eternity, I tell you, we're going to be studying with him what it meant, what it took, why it was necessary to even think about him coming to earth in that way. So Jesus, with liabilities such as all boys and girls face at birth, he faced envious, wow, this is the, watch my language, but he, he is that guy that wanted Satan, wanted Jesus cut down to size in heaven. And then on the cross, he was the one who was trying to kill him forever. And now, you see, Jesus faced him at every turn. Our maligned God now face to face with the universe's champion liar. He came to have a public showdown with the master of defeat, of deceit. And he, on his own, first time ever, the universe saw the principles of God's side of the great controversy up against Satan's side, his principles in the great controversy. So what did Jesus want to prove? We're going over this again, that God was not the kind of person that Satan had made him out to be. But that is not something the world today understands, except in just a few places. 
What Jesus won, as far as the angels are concerned, is not something that this world has caught on to. That our acceptance with God does not depend on some kind of a deal we can make with God, such as penance or confession or climbing steps in Rome or going to Mecca or hiding in some cave somewhere or monastery or making sure that we read the Bible through every year, make sure we answer all the questions in Sabbath school. That's not going to... That's not the way you get God to love you. See, so many people, just to carry this a little further, so many people confuse confession with repentance. I've confessed my sin. How many times have you watched people in your church or your family, why, why, are, why don't they like me? I, I confessed. But no repentance. Things haven't changed. Got to watch that, even in the Adventist church. Satan pictured God as a selfish dictator who would never bind himself to rules that he imposed on his own created intelligence, not God. But Jesus revealed God as one willing to submit voluntarily to the principles he himself ordained from the foundation of the world, completely uncoercive, ever patient with our slowness to learn. Satan accused God of being unfair and asking obedience from his created intelligence and for such a demand, he said, would deny them their freedom. You can't have freedom if you're forever hedging us up and we can't do this and you can't do that. Never trusting God that when God says you shouldn't do it, there are consequences over there if you do. Again, Jesus limited as we are, proved Satan wrong. Pilate expressed the response of all his contemporaries I find no fault in him at all. Even Satan found no fault in Jesus. And Satan and his cohorts were licked, but the battle was not over. Satan charged that God was basically selfish. How did Jesus answer that? All I can say to that, and I worked this out with young people, just watch him die. If you wonder if God is really selfish and he does all this just because he just enjoys the adoration and the singing of the universe. He loves to have people worship him. You've got it all wrong. Jesus showed us what it was like to be God when he was dying on that cross. God, could any suffering and death be more undeserving Gethsemane and Calvary put the final seal on Satan's lying tongue regarding how selfish God was. Risk number five. When Jesus returned to heaven, he left God's side of the controversy in the hands of men and women. Here God goes again. Boy, he knows how to kind of get to the edge of really blowing the whole thing. Creating this world's a laboratory to somehow show the universe what love was all about, that was some risk. For Jesus to come down just as we are, that's a risk. But now, when Jesus is gone, his best exhibit A, he says, it's all right. I have one more proof 
that will settle it throughout the universe. I'm going to use God's people. Let's see, that's a risk now. Let me tell you, when he went away and said, now you just wait a while, you're going to have power, but I want you to go back to Jerusalem, these people that crucified me, and those people who vilified you, and start there, and then work out, and go to all corners of the world. Jesus was exhibit A, the main centerpiece in Planet Earth's laboratory, but his followers will become divine franchises of the truth about God. He left it up to men and women. As you have sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. What you gave me to do as your part of the plan of salvation, I am sending them into the world to do it the same way I did it. It's up to them now. Uh, <laughs> that was really a major league risk. Paul challenged his converts. I love this. I love Ephesians. God now needed them to be holy and without blame before him in love to the praise of the glory of his grace. It was Paul talking to Jews who never looked at God this way before. And he worked his way through Jewish synagogues and through cities of Gentiles and somehow his understanding of God, his picture of God was making sense to people. That we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. That's still quoting Paul. He exhorted the Corinthians that as Christians we have been made a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. When Jesus died, not all the questions in the great controversy were settled. Even in the minds of unfallen angels. Created beings and other unfallen worlds. I know that most Christians today, most preachers, believe that it was all settled on the cross. What more could be done? They don't realize that Satan could easily say, and he is saying, well... All right, I concede. My, I tip my hat to him. He pulled it off. But he was God. I know that. Why, like God can keep his own commandments. I'm talking about created beings like me. We're the ones who want to feel a little more free in this universe and find some other way. I have other choices even as to how we can be, you know, enjoy life and be happy. Always trying to do it God's way? Ah, that's so, that's just plain old legalism. God, you know, granted, Satan lost. But the issue in the great controversy was not whether God could keep his own laws, but whether created beings could, could keep those laws and still live in freedom. Satan could always say that Jesus was still God. And so can men and women today say the same thing. And they are. That's why Ellen White said, uh, I just, when I, I read it maybe 25 times until I saw it. 
that at the cross, the last link of sympathy between Satan and the heavenly world was broken. But it wasn't stopped there. She continues, The angels did not even then understand all that was involved in the great controversy. Whoa! And the unfallen worlds did not fully understand. It wasn't over. And when we say it was all over at the cross, then why didn't Jesus come back in the first century then? If it's all over, why do we keep on living in this miserable world? There's more to this great controversy. The principles at stake were to be more fully revealed. I'm still reading. And for the sake of man, for the sake of man, Satan's existence must be continued. Man, as well as angels, must see the contrast between the Prince of Light and the Prince of Darkness. That makes sense. And so Jesus left it all in the hands of bumbling men and women because he had confidence that there would be some who would catch on. What's the message when you see those golden arches? Everywhere you go in this world, everywhere I've been in this world, there are golden arches. Anywhere. Beijing. Russia. In between. is a golden arch. Well, it's a franchise, isn't it? We're going to talk about franchises. But I wanted to know how this franchise really worked. And so I dug around and found the, a, the contract between headquarters and the local franchise. You know what a franchise is. You buy into a, a, a company and you pay, well, for some companies, if you want to have a rug cleaning business, you might put a $50,000 and they'll give you a franchise for your area. There was a time in 1974 when I was a Rotarian in Silver Spring, one of my buddies who had more money than I did, he was buying up a McDonald franchise and said, Herb, come along with me and you can have one for $50,000. Well, it wasn't exactly what I wanted to buy into. But let me tell you something. If I had, they are now worth millions. Those franchises. But Holiday Inn in the 70s, early 80s, we're not pulling it off. That was, they used to be, you know, a four-star motel that Marriott and some of the others weren't even in the league then. But many people, not many, but a number of people lost their Holiday Inn franchise and all the money they put into it. Because head office keep going around. They still do today. They're checking up on the bathrooms, see how clean they are. Check up on the laundry, watch the people mingle with their guests, and they, they didn't measure up. The Holiday Inn was really sinking. And people were showing their votes by not going to Holiday Inn. So they turned it around. Holiday Inn today is pretty good for middle class compared to you know, Doubletree or whatever. But it's, a, it's something you can count on. It's a good hotel. Because the franchise knows better and this is what they commit themselves to. Let's look at this. 
Our franchising system is built on the premise that the corporation can be successful if our franchises or our franchisees are successful first. Makes sense? We believe in a partnering relationship with our owner operators, suppliers, and employees. Success for McDonald's Corporation flows from the success of its business partners. You get any idea though? What do you think of this right away? This is no mom and pop shop. This is not something just kind of coming up. This is one of the wisest, most successful corporations in the world. Wherever you see GE, you know that that, that franchise model it means exactly what you now know it to mean. What was Christ's assignment? When he said, frankly, I've done my work. It's up to you now. I've glorified you on the earth. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them. The glory, the job of reflecting the character of God. <laughs> That's what it means. I have manifested your name. We'll talk about that tomorrow a little bit. This work was to answer Satan's haunting challenge that perhaps Jesus, being God, could keep his own commandments, but men and women couldn't and still be free and joyful. Now, how does that all work? How does this franchise concept work? The role of the Holy Spirit, something that the Adventist Church has not done very much with yet. Beyond saying and writing books the way other churches have written books, and good books, good books, about the Holy Spirit. But not understanding that the Holy Spirit's foremost responsibility is to help human beings reflect hometown, top office reflection of what the gospel is all about. When the Holy Spirit comes, his work was to be as a regenerating agent. And without this, the sacrifice of Christ would have been of no avail. There's no church, no denomination, no group on this planet that has ever said anything like that. Now we're getting into something very, very simple to understand, but you see how it fits into the great controversy. It is the spirit that makes effectual what has been wrought out by the world's Redeemer. Through the spirit, the believer becomes a partaker of the divine nature. Christ has given his spirit as a divine power to overcome all hereditary and cultivated tendencies to evil and to impress his own character upon his church. That is a mouthful, but that is solid theology. That's enough for you to think about before you go to sleep tonight. I'm still reading that particular, oh boy, great controversy. 
Of all the, the Spirit, Jesus said, He shall glorify me. The Savior came to glorify the Father by the demonstration of His love. So the Spirit was to glorify Christ by revealing His grace to the world. Yeah, Desire of Ages 671. The very image of God is to be reproduced in humanity. Only done now through the work of the Holy Spirit. The honor of God, the honor of Christ, which is what the great controversy is all about, God's honor is at stake, and that's why there's a controversy. It's involved in the perfection of the character of his people. Don't get all wound up on that word perfection. All it means is that you are letting the Holy Spirit mature you. And with the time you have to live in this world, whether it's 40 years or 94 years or whatever, you are maturing that plant that he put in you when you first confess Jesus. And that plant is growing. A plant cannot grow and mature overnight. It takes time. It's a perfect plant as it keeps growing. But there will be a day when you can pluck the fruit. That does come sooner or later. But it's the work of the Holy Spirit. The second reason now for the risk five, God needed faithful loyalists not only to settle the questions throughout the universe, but also to make the claims of Jesus believable to men and women throughout the world. It's a, it's a twin assignment, really. He wanted the principles of, of God to be so reflected that nobody else would ever question what God has been trying to say for thousands of years. But he also needed these people to get that message across to human beings. And that's one of the purposes of the Adventist Church, of course. Believable witness can only speak what they have personally seen and heard. How many of you have ever been in a court trial? Nobody? Okay. Witnesses? Were you witnesses for somebody? Well, you know what it's like. You don't want to put yourself on that stand or no lawyer a defense lawyer wants you to go on a stand unless he can really be sure that you know how to answer questions just right. Because a witness can turn that jury. And if you're honest, if you're believable, well, the one that's being prosecuted has a better chance. Because the prosecutor, too, wants to have the best witnesses to nail that man or woman. You're looking for people who've been there, saw it for themselves, they can speak with first-class awareness of the truth. And the best example I think of is this guy who spent many of his young years persecuting and harassing and, and killing the early Christians. On the way to Damascus, he saw a light. And then he could confidently, after several years, after he, he processed all this, what could all this mean? He finally got to the place where he was not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power, the Greek word, as many of you know, dunamis, dynamite, of God to salvation for everyone who believes. Little lesson here. Every time you see in your English Bible the word believe, Belief, that's not a good translation. Every time you see it, put in faith, has faith. Faith is far more than believing, isn't it? 
But that's the word here in the Greek. For those who have faith, who understand what it is to be fully committed to God, who appreciate what God has done, who trusts his word, who is glad to respond to whatever God wants him to do. All that's wrapped up in that English word faith, but not believe. For in it is the righteousness of God revealed. Here's, now they, they put the right word in here, from faith to faith. I may get into that tomorrow. In the big picture, Peter could see also that the success of God's plan to convince men and women of his side of the controversy depended on the transparent faithfulness of his loyalists, not how much they could speak and give lectures. Anybody can finally figure out that the sun is 93 million miles away from Earth. You believe that. You don't have faith in it. You just believe it. But if you're going to have faith in somebody, it's not that you just believe him. You're willing to trust your life with that person. That's why you get married. Until the time may come when that trust gets somewhat confused and the glue is broken and the glass falls and you never can put the pieces together again because trust is gone. Peter and... Oh, I love this. Second Peter 3. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of person ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? You know, here, we're Adventists waiting for Jesus to return, he's saying. What persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness looking for? And this is the Greek on this. This is the proper translation. Hastening the coming of the day of God. And if you don't hasten, you're delaying. Anybody who does not hasten the return of the Lord is delaying his return. Therefore, beloved... Looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, without spot and blameless. Now, there's nobody, there's nobody who will be redeemed who could say, I have been spotless. I, I, I have never made a mistake. That's not what we're saying tonight. Jesus came not to judge our sins, but to judge how much, how willing we were to obey, or just to follow his light. If he judges by sin, nobody would ever be saved. He's not interested in your past. He's not even interested in five minutes ago. He's only interested in what you're doing in the future. And if you are worried about your past, he isn't. He's only concerned about what are you going to do with it from now on. Well, is that 90 minutes? You want me to keep going? It's up to you. Well, we'll, we'll. The second reason for God to risk putting his side of the controversy into the hands of weak, sinful human beings is that no one else in the universe could really put the whole controversy into three-dimension living color. Now, I'll end with this because I, I think that some of you will get a little sleepy, and I'll finish it off.
tomorrow afternoon. Won't be take too long. You check out where you personally are now in the following the quotation. This is not aiming at anybody. It's just asking whether you fit into this. It is God's purpose to manifest through his people the principles of his kingdom that in life and character they may reveal these principles. Some laboratory, right? He desires to separate them from the customs and habits and practices of the world. Everybody has a life story. Everybody. Satan is constantly urging men to accept his principles. He is an accuser of the brethren. And his accusing power he is constantly using against those who work righteousness. The Lord desires through his people to answer Satan's charges by showing the result of obedience to right principles. Now my brother is a dentist and he spent his lifetime trying to get people to obey him. How to take care of the teeth. Look, if you don't do what I tell you, you're going to have terrible consequences. And he doesn't win all the time. These patients keep coming back because they're going to do it their way. We all live out the principles that we choose. Everybody has consequences, good or bad. If you don't brush your teeth properly, if you don't eat the right kind of food, you're going to have troubled teeth. And that goes for most anything else. Look, nobody needs to be a diabetic. And diabetics, unfortunately, because most people don't understand this, terrible way to end your life. I know too many people who just lost an ankle or lost a leg unnecessarily because of diabetes or blind. And all they need is to change their diet and do more exercise. It's just simple. There are consequences. But we should show the world what is right, what, it's, what, what the consequences are of right principles. Everybody has a story. All the light of the past, all the light which shines in the present and reaches forth into the future, as revealed in the Word of God, is for every soul who will receive it. Everybody has enough light to make a good decision whether you're in Mongolia or in Harlem or in the center of Africa, where there is not that much opportunity. Living in Darfur today? Come on. But everybody there has some light to make good decisions. And if they keep following that light, they're going to be in heaven. That's the only way that God can answer that faithfulness. The glory of this light, I'm still reading, which is the very glory of the character of Christ. That's what glory is. It's to be made manifested in the individual Christian, in the family, in the church, in the ministry of the word, and in every institution established by God's people. The problem is, so many Christian institutions, so many Christian families, 
don't really reveal much of this light, this grace, this glory that God is waiting for. And he waits for people to catch on. Even though they might have Christian names on their institution, it takes more than names. All these the Lord designs shall be symbols, franchises, of what can be done for the world. They are to be types of the saving power of the truths of the gospel. They are agencies in the fulfillment of God's great purpose for the human race. I'm still reading. They are to become channels or franchises through which divine instrumentalities communicate to the world the tide of God's love. Still reading. By beholding the goodness, the mercy, the justice, and the love of God revealed in the church, the world is to have a representation. I know most people would say representation. But I'd like to look at that word as it really is meant to be said. Representation of his character. Where does the Holy Spirit fit into this? Every one of you is a franchise for God. Every one of us needs to have somebody from headquarters to come down and help us to get those buns warm just right. Make sure we take care of people within that two and a half minutes. Make sure that everything about us is clean. It's something that people want to come back to and eat there. I'm just overwhelmed. You're saying to headquarters, don't worry, I'm going to send somebody down there for a week and he's going to help you put this thing together. I just ate at a Ryan's buffet in Chattanooga. You don't have Ryan's out here. You have hometown buffet, which is fine. But Ryan's is a couple of cuts higher than even Hometown Buffet. We have a good one down here. And I, I kept noticing, I went there several times, I kept noticing that there were one or two men who were writing down at the table, and people came to them. And I said, this is interesting, I'm going to watch. The second time I came, the manager, I said, I want to I ask you some questions. I've been observing what's going on here. You having trouble with management? No, no, no. I said, you're here because things are not up to speed, right? Yeah, yeah, but we're getting... Uh, you, they need your help, right? Yes. That's what the Holy Spirit is here to do for you. You're not up to speed yet? He can bring you up to speed. The Holy Spirit's job is to reproduce in you as a franchisee what it's like for head office. What head office would do if head office was everywhere. And he's not. Jesus is in one place. He only works for franchises. And you're it. And the Holy Spirit's job is to help you become what headquarters wants you to be. Oh, my. We can talk about this. And when the law of God is thus exemplified in the life, even the world will recognize the superiority of those who love and fear and serve God above every other people on the earth. And let me tell you something. If the world or honest people everywhere in the world could get enough of this reflected light through the franchises, the Lord would have come years ago. This is what's holding the return of Jesus back. But I'll get into that tomorrow, more specifically. It is his... You're saying, man, this is something. You look at page 9, 11, 12, and 13. It is his purpose that those who practice his holy precepts shall be a... 
distinguished people. Not to this world only, but to the universe are we to make manifest the principles of his kingdom. See, laboratory, 101, 201, 301. Every one of us should be thinking through and let the Holy Spirit tell us every day, Lord, what do you want me to do today? You better help me. God's franchises are his maturing loyalists. That's a bold thread throughout the Bible and Ellen White. And I'm going to talk about this tomorrow. I'm going to let you go because I know it's like on Friday night when you're getting kind of sleepy. But you've been very faithful. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, you are so good to us. Everybody in this room tonight can think of so many ways that you have intervened, that you have touched our lives, spun us around at times, opened our minds in ways that we just never saw it coming, and helped us through tough times, the death of real close loved ones. But we had a bigger picture, Lord, and we didn't sorrow as others who have no hope. We want to know more about you, Lord. We want to be on the edge of our seat, learning more about what God calls reality. So on this Sabbath day, help us to have a good night's sleep. Bring us back tomorrow, Lord. There's so much more that you want to help us think through as you do every Sabbath. Bless each family with their children, with their spouses, or even those who really go home and are by themselves, they may be very lonely. Lord, you tell them that you're there as a precious companion. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen.